Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Breakthrough Podcast. And today I'm extremely delighted. I always love all my guests, but some I love just that little bit more. And that's because Kirsty is a really good friend. Um, but also, I adore the work that she does. I think it's incredible for you to know who she is. She is Kirsty Chadwick. She's the CEO, the Group Chief Executive Officer of the Training Room Online. And um, we met each other, I thought it was about seven years ago now, Kirsty, was it? Uh, at least. I'm not at three, least. but more. Yeah. Could even yeah. be more. Now, what you'll need to know is that Kirsty is a Kiwi. For those of you who don't know what that means, that's a New Zealander. Um, and I'm a South African. Uh, but she lives in South Africa and I live in Ireland and we met in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> so just to make sure that we all know we are real globetrotters, you and I. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah and, and you were doing some really interesting work, which we'll come back to. Why I asked you to be here is, you know, through all the time I've been looking at this reskilling and upskilling at scale, um, even onboarding virtually, I think through COVID even more so. Uh, oh, it's so bland, isn't it? Online learning is bland. Uh, but also we have, and I know the work you've done in Saudi Arabia, um, Industry 4.0 has been around for a long time. People have not prepared. And because you were one of the first people that I met that had kind of really nailed this. You'd really gone after this um, and created a, a company that really looked at how to do lifelong learning um, and also, the second thing, of course, I love about you is your love of education um, and the contribution you make to that in the world, and especially in South Africa, where we are fighting such high levels of unemployment. So, of course, that's very close to my heart. So all those things I love about you and your company. Um, and so I think we should start with you telling people why you went from being a almost um, concert pianist to a teacher to where you are now. Tell us about your career and life in, in a short overview. How did you get to where you are now? Thanks, Marianne, and thank you for having me on your podcast series. I, I really look forward to the conversation with you. Um, yeah, so I grew up in rural New Zealand in a province called Taranaki, very small town called Inglewood. Um, loved, loved school, loved everything about life in New Zealand growing up as, as a young child there. I moved to university in Auckland and, yes, as you said, I studied performance piano um, with the sort of ambition of becoming a concert pianist. Second year into my degree, I, I had an incident and cut my finger in the lawnmower mowing my grandma's lawns. Um, and that ended ended that, that, that sort of chapter in my life, if you like. I continued my university degree in music and picked up mathematics and almost immediately knew I was going to go down a path of teaching. Um, so finished university, went to teacher's college, qualified as a music and maths teacher, secondary school level, and went back to the province of Taranaki where I was from and started teaching. Um, I taught in New Zealand for about four years, uh, head of department for music for most of those and secondary subject being mathematics. And then a couple of life incidents happened. My, my, my eldest brother passed away and then three months later, my mom passed away. And we went through a really challenging period as a family and part of the sort of things that my, my dad said to me is, what if, what if you were to go, you know, go overseas, go and do your two-year OE, and being a teacher, that was quite a common thing that young New Zealanders would do. So off I went to London, um, thinking that I would be two years teaching in London, and then I would be back in New Zealand and continuing my teaching career. 
I taught for about three weeks in London. Um, well, actually, I don't think I taught anything. It was incredibly difficult to get the children to sit down. So realized that that teaching part wasn't going to work for me. But I was a, I was too embarrassed to go back home, sort of feeling like I'd failed to be able to get that right. So I decided to do something completely different. And that was working in a direct marketing um, agency. We were knocking on doors, mostly in council estates around London, and we were asking for support for various different charities. And I think there was kind of a switch in, in direction in my head about, you know, just being able to still educate, but in a, in a slightly different way, because really what we were doing was informing and educating council tenants on their ability, you know, from, 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 from doing the charity work, we went into right to buy, you know, how to become a homeowner, how how did they engage with the council? How did they get a mortgage? How did they get insurance to protect the asset they just bought? So really enjoyed the adult engagement. And I think from there, started my first business, which was in the right to buy direct marketing space. And then second business as a mortgage, a mortgage business in the UK. And what brought me through to South Africa in 2005 was had enough of living in the, in London, to be honest, and was looking for somewhere where we could essentially out, you know, provide an outsource service. Um, and Cape Town at the time in South Africa was really becoming big in the BPO space, so business process outsourcing. They had calling the Cape. And it was one solution to how could South Africa attract international work? How could that fuel job and economic opportunities for young people in South Africa? And like you, Marianne, that's something that I I could really subscribe to. Um, I've lived in Cape Town now for the best part of, you know, 18 years in between doing a lot of travel. And I guess we'll cover that as, as, as we go through the conversation. But that's what got me to Cape Town. I had a call centre, about 120 young people in that call centre, servicing our customers in the UK. And there was the trigger for the start of this business, the Training Room Online, which I founded in 2008 based on just observing and seeing these young people coming, wanting employment opportunities, wanting to work, work in the call centre with a matric certificate, so they'd finished school, but really not equipped to, you know, get gainful employment, be in the workplace. And so it kind of started me to think about how, how do we solve for this problem? You know, how do we think about technology to be an enabler to create equal access to good quality education? How do we think about transforming what, what was and to a certain extent still is, you know, quite a broken system. So that was the love of education kicking in, the wicked problem out there to solve for and kind of going, all right, as an entrepreneur, what is there, what can I do to contribute and to make a difference? And that's where back in 2008, the Training Room Online was born. And that's that purpose to achieve that transformation and learning experiences and to use the technology to enable that has has never left the purpose of why TTRO exists is still the same and I still have the same if not more passion for solving the problems um, through 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 education tell us a bit more about what the training room online does today in its current format what does it do what type of clients what kind of solutions does it deliver so we create transformative learning experiences. So everything is about learning. Everything is about putting the learner at the heart of that. And often the work and increasingly the work is starting in the space of advisory um, and consulting to organizations. So typically our customers are large organizations, multi-sector and all governments. So governments for 
their own employees, um, or ministries of education. And that consulting work is often around how, how do organizations transition from delivering learning in a particular way? And that might, at this juncture, be even if they've been using e-learning and learning management system, how do they evolve that? How do they, how do they manage to be able to keep pace with the rapid requirement of skills that are changing because the industry and the business that they're operating is changing? So that's sort of how, how strategically can they keep reskilling and upskilling an existing workforce using technology and using different modalities of learning, you know, learning in the flow of work, micro-learning, gamified learning, you know, it's, a, it's been a, a shift and a transformation in the way learning's been delivered. And technology has really fueled the opportunities in and around that. So the strategy work is kind of the how are we going to help to transition and then the design, the development of the actual learning experiences, we do that um, in-house. And we work with a lot of different technologies to do the deployment of the learning. Um, and those technologies are, are wide and varied and increasingly more and more of them are coming into play. So, yeah, the customers that we're serving are coming to us looking to solve problems in and around the development of their workforce. They're looking for us to really consult with them on what are the, what are the advancements in technology and what does that mean for human capital development and very hot topic at the moment around artificial intelligence Lots and lots of tools coming out, this chat GPT. How do we use that? And is it ethical to use that? What are the risks involved in using AI in learning and developing people? So, yeah, it's a rapidly evolving world at the moment, Marianne. So still lots of problems to solve for, but infinitely more technology there if we can, you know, really, really sort of think creatively around how we innovate and use that. I want to, I don't know if you can name the clients, but you might just say so-and-so or you might tell us the name, but you've done some really cool projects. I know at one of the airports, for example, where you used micro-learning. I know for a government where you've done an all-of-vision uh, industry 4.0 project. Can you just explain to people listening what some of those projects look like? I know you've done onboarding for a very exciting client um, in, I think, in virtual reality. So, so just tell us a little bit more about some of the projects. What do they actually look like? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So, so we're doing work with a couple of airports, um, but the, the the longest sort of case study that we have is the work we've been doing with Dubai airports. And Dubai airports, government owned, wanted to be able to create a guest experience that was number one in the world. So they were on a mission to be able to really you know, use different different parts of their learning learning strategy to differentiate themselves in the way a guest experience is going from the curb through to the gate and from the gate back to the curb. And every touch point in that guest experience, whether it's with police, with immigration, with customs, with airline staff, with security, everybody in the ecosystem of the airport was going through different types of learning experiences. And what they brought in us in to do was to initiate a micro-learning program of reinforcement. And I think we all know in learning, you, know, you can do events, what we call learning events. You can go in the classroom, you can learn about topics, and then you go back and you go back into the job. And often if that learning doesn't get applied very rapidly post the learning event, 
the application of the learning is very low. The forgetting curve kicks in and people by nature just go about doing the same things in the same way that they've always done it. So we came in to reinforce what was happening in those learning events. So it's daily engagement with an app on your phone. It's three to five minutes, very, very short. Um, and it's reinforcing what you've learned in that learning. And it's personalized to the, to, to the way in which I respond to it and the way you respond to it, Marianne, would be different. And then if, if I'm not responding and I'm not demonstrating the behaviors that we're looking to see, I'll get content that keeps on reinforcing that or gives me more learning material to go and learn more on an ongoing basis. So it's that notion of learning in the flow of work. I'm always learning. It's small. It's, it doesn't take a lot of time, but it shows and demonstrates through the data the impact of closing a skills gap. So, yeah, the micro learning solution that we've produced there, we've been going for about four years with the airport. Um, very proud of winning uh, the gold medal at the Learning Technology UK Awards last year for the best use of mobile learning. Um, so, big shout out to Dubai Airports. We did that award in partnership together. And, yeah, as a result of a lot of interventions and a lot of hard work from their side and from ours to, to really successfully move the needle in developing the skills of everybody in that ecosystem at the airport. Um, so yeah, that's the airport project. Um, I think the one you're referring to on the, the Department of Basic Education in South Africa, Marianne, mm. work that we did there. So we, we were part of a consortium and this work's been going for a number of years where we developed a national platform the national platform was designed to house the content, curated content aligned to the CAPS curriculum. So all subjects, all grades, all levels, um, to have a platform where any content could be curated for a learner and for a teacher and also for the parent to be able to support the child in a single technology ecosystem. Um, and we did... We did the curation of all open educational resources that were available. Um, so we populated those assets into the relevant parts of the curriculum, making it easier for a teacher to source and find resources that they could use in the class. And also from a student side to be able to say, well, if I'm concerned or if I'm struggling with a particular topic, I can go and I can find that topic because it's a very structured curriculum and I've got additional resources. I might go and watch a little video. I might have a animation, I might just have an explanation of this in a different format to how my teacher is explaining it. So it's provided to really support the whole educational ecosystem from the learner, the teacher and the parent, and then obviously access at an administrative level from national down to province, down to district, down to the individual school to start looking at, you know, where are, where are the teachers in getting through the curriculum so that by the end of the year, the curriculum is being completed. So starting to get more access to data. Um, so yeah, that's that's sort of some of the work wow. that we've been doing. You referenced <laughs> Industry 4, that was a Saudi mm. Arabian project that we did. Mm. Um, Saudi Arabia through Vision 2030, very ambitious, um, very transformative in what that country is doing and bringing their human capital through the Vision Realization program on that journey was really important to them and leveraging the opportunity they had to leapfrog so industry four became, you know, what could what could be innovated in Saudi using in industry 4.0. So we came on board with a project with the Cax University. 
um, looking at creation, creating an innovation center for learning 4.0. So again, it was pressing the boundaries of how could we use things like virtual reality at the time or augmented reality? How do we think about delivering learning experiences using those types of technology as it aligns to the types of products they wanted to make in Saudi Arabia using Industry 4? Um, so yeah, that was a, a really amazing project to be part of at a time of such initial transformation and when the vision was launched, we were we were involved in that work. Um, and yeah, induction onboarding done many of those. Neom, um, again, Saudi Arabia, Neom, big vision um, of what Neom will be. And the induction onboarding, we did that a couple of years ago now, actually, it was, it was at a time when Neom was forming. Um, and when we started, the office was still in Riyadh. Now everybody had started to move to Neom, but the city wasn't what it is in the in the marketing material. So we needed to produce an onboarding program. We sent our production team over. We filmed Neom. So there are people looking for work opportunities in Neom. Knew what they would see when they got there, but could understand the vision of what it was going to be. Um, so... Yeah, that was, it was just a great project to work on at that early stage of NEOM and to see how far advanced NEOM now is in its development and the vision that they have of what it will be is, is quite spectacular. So, yeah, we've been blessed with opportunities to work across the spectrum of lifelong learning in many different parts of the world. And, yeah, it continues to be a pleasure for us to think and reimagine what learning and people development will be into the future. Gosh, you know, you, you do so much breakthrough work. It, it's I'm always in awe of every project you do. Um, but what if I am an HR director or a learning and development person sitting here being absolutely freaked out by what you're telling me and nobody wants to spend any money on technology and I don't understand a single word of what an LMS or an LXP or a whatever any of these, I don't even know where to start to find these technologies. What will you say to them? What do they need to do to upskill themselves, to understand this, to start to engage with this? Because I don't believe that this upskilling and reskilling at scale can happen without technology. No, I completely agree with you. It, it can't, and it can't keep pace with the change in what those skills need to be. So technology underpinning it. So I, I think where I start with those conversations is, and it, it's always been this way for us, technology is just the enabler. But don't worry about what technology. The starting point is not the technology. The starting point is what are, what are the experiences that you want to create for your learners? We'll figure out what technology enables those as we go on our journey. And also knowing that in these organisations that they've all got technology in the HR space. It might not be fit for purpose for the learning space, but they've, they've got a starting point of technology. So I think that's where that consulting and strategy and educational work comes in, Marianne. It's to educate our customers and take them on a journey which matures over time. So making the shift in a learning team from where they, you know, aren't very mature in the learning technology space and taking them and educating them on a journey of, of, of where to get to, in some ways the less, the less mature at this juncture have a little bit of an advantage because they can leapfrog past some mm. of the older technologies that are almost trying to be retired and, 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 and our customers that we're working with and there are better and newer technologies coming along. So it, it doesn't matter where you start the journey, the important thing is to get on the journey. And where we have um, 
you know, we've started to develop through our training team, you know, where we facilitate power hours or masterclasses with our clients. We educate them on what's coming or any, any topic really that's relevant. And again, we see that as part of the journey. We, we, we see that as being part of breaking down any fear or barrier to how technology is utilized in this space and also recognizing that it's not done, it, it, that doesn't replace jobs. Um, it just changes the nature of the job and the nature of what the learning and development function looks like. So in many ways, that's exciting. Well, I think that's exciting, you know, to go on a journey of learning as learning professionals. Our tagline in our business is never stop learning. And I've been saying to my team that it's never been more true for ourselves that we never stop learning because we've got to be ahead of the curve. And that's what our customers expect of us. We need to know more about AI and AI tooling and have a point of view of where is that going to go and, and, then, and then be able to sort of advise. There's nobody that's an expert on that at the moment. And it's not about being an expert, at being on the journey and, and working with trusted partners to, 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 take us, to take us there and think together. And, and if I'm an employee or a leader... Um, and I'm not in the L&D team, not HR, but I realize, oh, dear, I'm terrified. How do I upskill and reskill myself? What can I do? So there's a lot, of, there's a lot available. Um, and I think increasingly, and COVID most certainly accelerated this, there is a lot of learning available. There are a lot of libraries of learning, LinkedIn learning, there's Coursera, there's Udemy. There's, there's a lot of learning out there. I think one of the things that, that, that we, we're spending quite a bit of time working on is the definition of what are the skills, you know? So if we think, mm. rather than think about a job, think about the actual core critical skills that people need to have and where those skills could be applied cross-functionally in different roles. So it's almost the, the question is becoming, what are the skills that I need? What are the skills that I should be thinking about to upskill into the future? And understanding that as it aligns to where industry and business is going. So I think sometimes it's overwhelming for people to do a Google search and say, well, I've got to learn about, you know, acquire skill X. And now I've got 50 different options placed in front of me. What one do I choose? You know, I think defining the skills firstly is, is the key because then what you're searching for is a smaller piece of learning to bring you that skill and doing that repetitively over time, just continually upskilling to different proficiency levels. And in doing that, new opportunities and jobs and roles that you probably never thought about will, 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 will come, come to light. Um, so skills-based organisations is probably one of the hottest topics yeah. that we're talking to our customers about right now. Focus on skills, mm. less on jobs and roles, and look at where you apply those skills cross-functionally. Yeah, I mean, one of the discussions I'm having is every um, organization needs a skills taxonomy, right? Um, Absolutely. And yeah, absolutely. And they don't. <laughs> Nobody I talk to can tell me here are the skills we have, here are the skills we need five years from now, and here are the gaps we have, and we know exactly which of our people have which, and we therefore know what we need to build, buy, borrow, partner on, um, yep. because you don't need to own all the skills. You can have access to it as well. Um, and that's a lot of conversations, but so few of them have skills taxonomies. And, and there are skills taxonomies out there, like the Singapore government has got an entire skills taxonomy for all of Singapore, open source. 
Um, but the other thing I say to people is just go onto LinkedIn, look at jobs you're interested in or jobs you have, look at LinkedIn ads and look through the skills that they're asking for. Exactly. Yeah. Because right? that's, what, that's what's needed. That's what's, what's, yeah. what's coming through 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, again, back to that, that level of maturity, getting to the skills taxonomy and understanding your current skills in your business, is, it's, it's not been a language that's been used for years. It's no. kind of coming out of the, the need for organisations to have the currency of skills today and a forward view on what those are going to look like. Um, I think to that, you know, what what I've been finding quite interesting over the last couple of years is the the importance of learning and development has been elevated in organisations. It's a it's a C-suite conversation. It's a board conversation. It's a you know the development of people, as we've experienced over the fifteen years of the business, it never had that higher concern, if I can call it that. Whereas now the conversations are very, it's really elevated because the business isn't able to achieve its strategy and direction of travel if it doesn't have the skills in its people. And we look at how much restructuring is happening around the world in very big organizations. You know, the question I have there is, are you restructuring? Do you know the skills that you're letting go of, of those individuals? You're letting go of the roles, but do you understand their skills? Are you sure you couldn't utilize or leverage those skills or reskill, retain your institutional knowledge of, of those people, many of whom have been there for a very long time, but skill them differently? And you know, those those kind of conversations, if we've been having these sorts of conversations a couple of years ago, I think we would probably be looking at a different landscape um, at the moment. So that's driving the urgency of, of the skills taxonomies, the conversations, the identification, the definition of what are the skills that we need. And I think that's why it's become more of a priority um, for organisations and governments. It, 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 also, it also feels talent marketplaces, right? So if you yeah. want to have, if you want to put projects up, you know where the skills are, you can ask for those skills, people can put their hand up, you open up your internal market of your talent. But the other thing is I'm with you, like I hate this restructuring cost-cutting. I'm sitting in a country here where our tech industry has let all these people go, but our pharma industry needs all these people. But nobody sat down and said, why don't we do a talent swap, a talent, um, you know, swap talent. So they go and learn other skills, bring them back, mm. share the salary. I mean, they just, I feel like we're always going for the fastest, easiest route out instead of creating long-term sustainability, isn't it? Yeah, and, and, and different options, right? So, so you know, almost industry leaders coming together to discuss the topic of skills and to discuss things like that. You know, what are you needing? Well, I've got surplus here. You know, find ways mm -hmm. that the conversations can happen um, and optionality can be, can be given. So, yeah, it's such an important conversation for industry leaders to be mm -hmm. having, government to be coming together academia to be coming to the table so I've often sort of looked at that triangle of industry academia government and, and seeing the need for there to be deeper mm -hmm. conversations around how we're developing people and how on that continuum of lifelong learning that you spoke about Marianne we've got common alignment of the goals and that the, the outcome of where we want to take you know a child starting an early childhood education and developing through through 
and time to be relevant when they come out of school, out of university, out of college, to enter the workplace and to be employable. Because if we don't look at the curriculum and reform curriculum to be relevant, we still have that challenge that I faced when I started my call centre in South Africa of having the right skills for the right job at the right time. Um, and we're not going to solve that problem if it's not a consultative approach between academia, industry and government. Um, and that's still something which I feel we've got a long way to a long way to go. Yeah, and I think this is going to replace workforce planning as we know it. It's going to be skills planning um, at a government level, at an academia level. It should be driving the courses and the learning we do at university, which should also be a lot more agile and adapted. But no, I'm with you. Oh, this is a big bugbear. This could be a whole other podcast for us to, to look at and talk about, maybe with a whole panel. Um, what's next for TTRO or for you? Where are you taking this next? I think AI, you've mentioned, where is this going next in your mind, the next two to three years? I think, you know, we're, we're passionate about our expansion into our African market and the Middle East, which we've mentioned we do a lot of work there. We're, we're really passionate about expanding our presence and our footprint and the contribution that we can make to the impact of developing people in, in the nations that really need it. So we've got a big push in, in what we do there. We've also had a really interesting partnership with New Zealand government um, and formed a public-private partnership with New Zealand government for a product that we've created with them. It was initiated in COVID to support small, medium enterprise get onto a journey of digital transformation. And the challenge that New Zealand had through COVID was 95% of New Zealand businesses are small businesses. About 30% of them back in 2020 had a website and they knew that through lockdown, these businesses weren't gonna have the resilience to be sustainable if they didn't start to get on a journey of creating a digital presence, becoming more visible and using digital tools within their businesses to help them be more sustainable and productive and grow. So Digital Boost is the, the name of the program that the government launched and we got involved to do a systems integration project and build a tool. So not only could we provide the educate part of it, so we can educate and we can give you the knowledge, but we needed to, on top of that, give a tool which would allow them to be able to know what to do. So it's great. I've learned about getting my website. I know about broken links, but how do I fix them? If I run an, if I do an assessment on my, a diagnostic on my website, it tells me I've got broken links. How do I fix that? Or how do I print out a report and give it to someone who has the skills to fix it? So the identification diagnostic was the tool that we built. Um, and, and yeah, took that live. Last year, we sort of went live. We've got in the whole ecosystem about 65,000 small businesses that are regularly going back and engaging with the Digital Boost program, educating themselves about 12,000 of them since we launched the tool have started to use it on a regular basis to improve things around how they can have a booking system, how to do SEO. Um, they can integrate their Facebook and their social media. So everything comes in a digital action plan, a plan on a page, very simple to understand. And if you're not able to do it as the small business owner, you can send a report to somebody who can help you. Then you go and check that that has been done. So New Zealand government are working with us through government to government to take that and launch that globally. 
So we're really excited about where that might go because at scale, we can start to support small business owners and help them navigate and understand the complexity of which large business has teams of people and chief executives there to be able to help them. Small business is pretty lonely. So bringing them digital tools, bringing them things that help them kind of have access to access to a chief marketing officer, a chief digital officer, and the tools are there, just how we integrate them and bring them together is what we've managed to do um, successfully in our partnership with New Zealand government. Um, so, yeah, we're excited about what, what that journey looks like. And, again, it's sort of tackling things in a transformative scale, right? We're looking at how do we, how do we solve this and not just do it in one part, but then how do, we, how do we productize that? How do we make it more accessible to everybody? Because the more people that we can get this in the hands of, the more successful, I believe, the outcome of small business survival will be. I just love how you think. You just cannot think small, Kirsty. We know this about you. <laughs> but you're also very humble. People have to know that. Um, so I really have to help boost your 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 <laughs> people knowing about you because I don't want you to be the biscuit secret on the planet because I think that the work you do is important. What strikes me is that working in the Middle East um, and into those areas, working in Africa for me is very exciting. We interviewed John Kamara the other day of Good AI that's out of Kenya and that does amazing work around the world. You, I don't know if you've met him. He's an amazing I've human. Met him, but I've heard of him. Yeah, he's gorgeous. And, and he's on a mission to create AI skills because one thing we know, you and I, is that the, the digital savvy and the skill and talent in Africa and the Middle East, where we have the youngest people and all the other yep. groups that are aging, they are the future skills of the planet. We have yeah. to take care of them, and you're doing that. Yeah, and it, 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 just to your point, and, and with John, and partnership, you know, we're an organization that we know we need to partner. We don't have all of the answers, and, you know, what we're really sort of enjoying with some of the partnerships that we've found is where, where can we build these more transformative solutions where we don't need to be mm. doing all of it. We, we need to be doing a part of it and I mean to the New Zealand project I mean not not only do we partner with the government we partner with Google and we partner with Academy X um, yeah. sort of a New Zealand company uh, edtech business like ours um, doing great work in the higher education space so the partnerships are really really important and it's the one plus one can make an exponential 10 if we if we partner with the right people and, and innovate and collaborate in the right way so yeah, I think that's an important thing to put out there that there's so much work to do. There is mm. so much needs to be done. I really believe, you know, together we're stronger. I know that's the South African rugby um, hashtag, so I probably shouldn't yeah, use thanks it. But for, thanks I, for saying I that. Do because, believe it. because that that was, I know we're in around rugby World Cup time and, and I'm not sure when we'll air this one, but um, you and I are going to be on opposing sides of, of the rugby World Cup, won't we? Lovingly. We Unless you become an all unless you become an all black fan overnight. No, it's not gonna happen. I do have very great regard for your team, I have to say. And for, and for, for all the practices. And I know you have very high regard for my team as well. Yes, indeed. And on any day when they play other teams, we'll probably support them, right? But not when they play each other, then we'll be in fierce yeah. competition. Um, I do hope we're together in the final, though. So, look, last few things. Um, where can people find you? Where can they find out more about you? Where can they find out more about TTRO? How can they, 
if they want to work with you, if they just want to learn, what can they mm. do? So website, www.ttro.com, um, LinkedIn profile. We're very active on LinkedIn as a business, um, personally active there. A lot of people connect with me through LinkedIn um, or through coming through our website. Um, and, and, and yeah, we're happy to chat, you know, and, and learn more about organizations. What are their pain points? potential partners that might want to see or see an opportunity in what, what we are doing. So, yeah, I would encourage people to reach out to us, um, follow follow the work that we are doing. We try to be active in posting what we do as TTRO. We do need to do more of that. And some of our customers tell us, you know, you you are like the best kept secret. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you don't um, get out there enough. So we are also going to try and drive our, our eminence and our presence at more events and, you know, really just, talking to the world about what we're doing and how could that be of value to others. Um, so, yeah, I would encourage and thank you for for supporting me and thank you for this this opportunity. I appreciate it. Oh, oh I would tell the entire world about you. You know that. Um, so, look, we have a fun question we end up, and may I just say you're not allowed to take Glenn or your son with you. Um, um, so if you were stranded on an island all by yourself, What's the one thing that you think you could not live without? My laptop. <laughs> that is so true. You're always with your laptop. You better have solar power charging. <laughs> well, there we go. That's all you need to know about Kirsty because she's always thinking and always innovating and always learning. Um, and that's one of the things I really love about you. Other than that, you're just a spectacular human being. Thank you so Thank much you. for spending this time. <laughs> no, it's um, been a pleasure. Thank you. And you take care and uh, we'll, we'll see you soon, hopefully in person. Bye-bye. That's great. Thank you so much. Bye.